service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Tim Allen are insane. Long before he starred in the highest-rated television show in the country, he was a small-time cocaine dealer in Michigan. It was a career opportunity that ended as quickly as it began. He was busted at the Kalamazoo County Airport after he attempted to sell $40,000 worth of blow to undercover cops. He began to hone his comedy chops not in stand-up clubs, but in prison, as a way to stay out of trouble and out of harm's way. In order to avoid the mandatory life sentence imposed by the state of Michigan for possession with the intent to sell, he copped a plea deal and turned informant for the federal government. And despite an arrest that had the potential to ruin his life forever, Tim Allen made a 180-degree turn and went on to make great movies. Come on, you know you love the Santa Claus. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great movie. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Joe Arizona singing The Preacher and the Bear in 1919. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Randall Kleiser's Grease. And why would I play you that specific slice of hopelessly devoted cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on October 2nd, 1978. And that was the day that Tim Allen's brief career as a Kalamazoo Coke dealer ended when a dozen undercover cops surrounded him in an airport terminal. On this episode, cocaine, comedy, mandatory life sentences, and Tim Allen. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 3, Hollywoodland. Years later, he would relish a crowd. Every time a paying audience would laugh in a collective moment of amusement, a moment brought on by one of his jokes, he would feed off their energy and then turn that energy into something new and make them laugh again. Whether it was a live audience watching his stand-up in the 1980s or a studio audience watching a taping of his sitcom in the 1990s, or an audience taking an animated ride with him in a darkened movie theater at the turn of the century, Crowds were his bread and butter. Crowds were what he did. But in 1978, long before he discovered that the exaggerated grunt of a power-tool-hungry male could be parlayed into the most popular television show in the world, Timothy Allen Dick faced the first and toughest crowd of his life. The crowd wasn't large, only about 10 people. They were all locked up in one room together. And not just any room, but a holding cell inside a jail in Michigan. There was one toilet in the middle of the room, one toilet for all 10 men. The floor was wet and so was the toilet seat. 
There was piss everywhere because men can't hit a fucking target no matter how many times you remind them. And they're either too lazy or too stupid or too directionally challenged or they just don't give a shit. Inmates gave less of a shit than dudes on the outside. Yeah, I pissed all over the floor. Fuck you looking at. You should be thankful that I don't piss that dumb fuck look right off your face. Timothy Allen Dick knew what made guys like this tick. Takes one to know one. He knew what made them angry and what got them excited. What they revealed and what they kept hidden. And they can't do three things at once, he tells sold out crowds a decade later. Ever notice how your old man can't eat, watch TV, and talk to you at the same time? He'd tell them how his mom would say that the only reason men are alive is for lawn care and vehicle maintenance. And that one got a lot of laughs. So did the bit about how men couldn't help but lie all the time. They lied to women because they hated getting caught for making shit up. Even if the real reason the women were angry was because the men were lying so much. But there were other things that men were capable of doing. Some of those things, perhaps. They never would have actually thought themselves capable of until they had spent a few days, weeks, months in a cramped holding cell with 10 other guys. It was amazing what you could get used to on the inside. And it didn't matter if there were a dozen other dudes watching while it happened. Tim didn't want to think about what was possible when men were at their lowest and most desperate. He was too busy dwelling on his own desperation, which is exactly what had landed him on the inside in the first place. He had fucked up. He was a fuck up. Big time fuck up. The guy he'd sold cocaine to turned out to be a narc, deep undercover. Should have just stood the hooking up college kids with the little baggies bought on daddy's dime, but Tim got greedy. Saw the chance to make bigger bucks and went for it, to infinity and beyond. But he had apparently forgotten that you can't get there from Michigan, at least not as a drug dealer. Because of all the years to get busted for selling coke in the state of Michigan, 1978 was the worst. Only a month earlier, Michigan state legislators had passed a new law that made possession with intent to distribute over 650 grams of cocaine or heroin punishable by a mandatory life sentence. No possibility of parole. The only other crime in the state with an equally harsh penalty was murder. It was the toughest drug law in the United States. 650 grams, just under a pound and a half. That was the exact amount that Tim had in the Adidas gym bag that he brought to the setup with the undercover cops at the Kalamazoo County Airport. And now, sitting on a cold metal bench against the wall of a holding cell in jail, surrounded by men who were far more grisly and hardened than he could ever be in his wildest dreams, Tim worried he'd get busted again. And this time, it would be his head, his face, and Jesus Christ, maybe even worse. He'd heard the stories about the inside. What happens when men do what they have to do simply to survive? Half of the dudes here were certifiable. Just say one wrong thing, one wrong word, and you were done. Not even a few days had gone by when he came to the realization that he couldn't do it. He wasn't cut out for doing time. He could be there for days or weeks waiting for his arraignment. He wasn't built for this, wasn't cut out for jail. He just couldn't hang. Or maybe he could hang. He could hang himself from one of the bars of the holding cell. The higher, the better. He could use the shirt off his back. He pictured it in his mind. His long sleeve shirt, one end tied around the dirty metal bar and the other around his neck. Who was he kidding? Knowing himself, he'd probably fuck that up too. 
he'd wind up dangling just off the ground, the shirt not tight enough to actually constrict his airway, stuck in gallows humor limbo, looking like an asshole who couldn't even take his own life. He'd probably dangle there for a good hour or more while the rest of the guys in the holding cell laughed and took pot shots. And the image of his own botched suicide did make him snicker, just a little. So fucking funny, one of the big guys in the holding cell wanted to know. He was huge, twice Tim's size. He walked up to Tim, got in his face. He had a scar over his nose and another down the left side of his chin. His right eye was lazy. He spat on the floor, probably marking his territory. He repeated the question. I said, what's so fucking funny? Tim panicked. He tried not to let it show. Should he tell the truth? Just say it was nothing? He stammered. There was nowhere to go, no way out. The rest of the guys in the cell were now gathering around to see how many punches it was going to take for this guy to knock Tim on his ass. And why? There didn't have to be a why. It was fucking prison. The place was full of guys who were bored and looking for an excuse to create a little excitement. Finally, Tim responded. But he didn't say what he had been thinking about that made him laugh. And he didn't say it was nothing. He said, it's pretty close to closing time. In this moment of peak crisis, Tim chose to deliver a straight-up perfect impression of Elmer Fudd. The big guy's muscles relaxed. He unclitched his fists. The look on his face softened. He chuckled. You're a funny motherfucker, he said, laughing louder now. And then he left Tim alone. How many stand-up comedy careers were born in prison as a method of survival? Timothy Allen Dick had no clue. At the moment, however, he wasn't thinking about a career in stand-up. He was just thinking about the ways in which he could rig it so he didn't die, whether it be at the hand of another inmate or by his own shirt wrapped around his neck. of traffic before it flipped over. The other car, traveling in the opposite direction, didn't have time to get out of the way. There was no warning, no way out. Brakes squealed, tires gnawed the pavement. The shriek of metal on metal was ear-splitting and soul rattling. Timothy Allen Dick didn't go with his parents and a few of his siblings to the University of Colorado football game that day. So he wasn't in the car with them when a drunk driver's car literally flopped on top of their car. His mother and siblings survived. His father, however, wasn't so lucky. He was killed in the crash. It was November 23rd, 1964. The Dick family of eight had suddenly become a family of seven. Tim was 11 years old. He was angry. He was angry that his father had been taken away from him. He was angry that a drunk man could crash into a sober man and that the drunk man wasn't the one to die. Life was fucking unfair like that. So what do you do when life is patently unfair? When your anger about one thing metastasizes into anger about everything. You game life. You don't listen to anyone else, especially adults. But you don't let the adults know you're not listening. You smile, you say please, you say thank you, you sit politely at the dinner table with perfect posture, with your napkin folded neatly in your lap. You demonstrate manners that would make Emily fucking post proud, and what the manners are just for show. Because when the adults turn their backs, you take them for all they're worth. You nick hooch from the liquor cabinet. 
You grab the keys off the kitchen counter and take the station wagon for the ride of your life. You give off the illusion that you are paying attention, following rules, listening, and being respectful. But in reality, you aren't doing anything of the sort because there's pain and anger gnawing away at your insides. And this is how you deal with it. And you keep dealing with it, even when your mother remarries and moves your family halfway across the country, from Denver, Colorado to a motor city suburb, Birmingham, Michigan. Cars are the shit, and at least in Birmingham, you're in big three territory. Dad loved cars, so you do too, but the anger doesn't go away. It gets worse, actually, because now you have to learn how to be a Midwesterner. You didn't ask to live there. The air is more dense than back in Denver. You drink pop, not soda. The pizza's a fucking rectangle and the kids are different. No one knows you because you're the new kid. Maybe they care, maybe they don't. You manage to go through the motions, graduate high school, then Western Michigan University. The bachelor's degree is nice to hang on your wall when your mom comes by for a visit, but what's it gonna get you? And those philosophy classes you took aren't gonna help you flip burgers any faster. Now there's bigger opportunities out there, especially if you can put up a good front, look presentable and all clean cut, but underneath, you gotta give zero fucks, be ruthless, feel invincible, answer the phone when it rings after midnight, hop in your Chevy Nova at the drop of a hat to make a delivery, be a goddamn Johnny on the spot. Don't tell a soul about what you're doing because what you're doing is highly illegal. You thrive on the thrill of doing something highly illegal. You thrive on risks and the risks you'll take are major fucking risks because no one ever made a ton of cash by going the easy way. It's the hard way or no way. In the summer of 1978, Timothy Allen Dick was 25 years old and living with a friend, Gerald Mead, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. They weren't just roommates, they were business partners. Tim and Gerald were small-time Kalamazoo cocaine dealers. The coke came up to Michigan from Florida, where a local wholesaler would front Tim and Gerald large quantities of white powder. They'd empty the coke on a table, split it up into smaller piles. Then they'd cut the coke with baking soda, which gave them twice the volume of their product than they started with. Tim and Gerald would sell the diluted Coke for about two grand an ounce, pay back the wholesaler what he was owed, and walk away with a couple hundred bucks to split between the two of them. Beats waxing philosophical at a burger joint. One of the sales that Tim and Gerald made in August of that year was to a man named Michael Pfeiffer. They met Michael through their wholesaler. Michael had reached out because he wanted to buy two ounces. So he met Tim and Gerald at their house, and bought the two ounces with a handshake and $3,980 in cash. And then he left with his drugs. Neither Tim nor Gerald nor the wholesaler knew that Michael Pfeiffer was actually an undercover Michigan State cop. Michael had been spending his summer posing as a Coke buyer in order to infiltrate the Michigan drug trade. And it was no coincidence that his undercover mission dovetailed nicely with the recent enactment of the Michigan State Lifer Law that could get you put away for good when caught with more than 650 grams of coke. Michael Pfeiffer set up numerous deals, not just with Tim and Gerald, but with other dealers, distributors, and wholesalers. At first, Michael's target wasn't just Tim Allen Dick and Gerald Mead. They were low-level, small fries. He wanted the wholesalers, the distributors, the guys who controlled the planes and cars that brought the filthy white powder up north from Florida. He hoped that by interacting with Tim and Gerald and others, that one of those interactions would lead to a big get. But that moment never seemed to happen. And the more deals that Michael Pfeiffer set up, the more he worried that he'd get made. And then Michael thought of another way. 
He just needed a little leverage with one of the low-level guys. October 2nd, 1978, Kalamazoo County Airport. Michael Pfeiffer waited impatiently inside the terminal. He looked at the clock up on the wall, and they were late. Travelers hustled in and out of the airport terminal, some running to catch departing flights and others just looking to get home after a long flight. Michael hoped that the guys hadn't gotten cold feet, that we couldn't fault them. This had to be one of the biggest deals of their nascent drug dealing careers and one of the biggest risks they'd taken to date. Michael Pfeiffer had scheduled a meetup with Tim and Gerald at the Kalamazoo County Airport to buy a pound and a half of cocaine. The set price, $40,000. The plan was that Tim and Gerald would walk into the terminal with the coke in a bag, place the bag in one of the lockers designed for people storing winter coats while they flew to warmer climates, and let's be honest, designed for drug deals, and then bring Michael Pfeiffer the key upon which Michael would unlock the locker, grab the drugs, and replace them with the money. Then they'd go their own ways. But they wouldn't be going separate ways that day. Michael Pfeiffer would drive away from the airport with the dealers in cuffs in the back seat of the cruiser. And Michael sure as shit wasn't carrying $40,000 on him. He had no intention of giving Tim or Gerald any money. What he did have was about a dozen other undercover state troopers blending in with the crowds at the terminal, ready to jump on his mark. Michael Pfeiffer breathed a sigh of relief when Tim and Gerald finally arrived. Tim was carrying a brown Adidas gym bag. He walked it over to the lockers, stuffed it inside one, closed it up, and locked it, just as they had planned. Michael tried not to get too excited, not yet at least. Next, the key handoff. Michael walked over to the locker, unlocked it, opened the door, and pulled the brown Adidas gym bag out. He unzipped the bag and examined the contents inside. Jackpot. Michael Pfeiffer put a hand in the air, and the next thing Tim and Gerald knew, a dozen guys were coming at them from every direction with loaded sidearms. On the fucking ground now! Just like that, Timothy Allen Dick's career as a low-level coke dealer was over. And the cops had gotten one step closer to taking down the guys that they were really after. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The spotlight was on. Now was no time to bomb. Either the next joke would kill or the audience would kill him. The audience of one. It was a fellow inmate who had him in a corner and was about to go full Leon Spinks on his face. Timothy Allen Dick figured he had less than 30 seconds before the back of his head became a permanent part of the concrete behind him. Ironically, it was comedy that got Tim into the situation in the first place and the inmate was the outgoing president of the Toastmasters Club inside the prison, and Tim was picking up the mantle. They had a little ceremony to celebrate the shift, which included a roast. Tim was in his element. Is this thing on? He didn't hold back. Tim roasted the inmate like he was Don Rickles, and the guy was just some sitting duck sap in the audience. And that guy, the inmate, he didn't think it was funny, which was more than obvious by the way he now had Tim backed into a corner. Everyone had a reason for why they were in the joint. And this guy's reason was that he couldn't take a joke at his own expense. Tim had made a joke, many jokes, all of them at the guy's expense. Thus, Tim was a dead man. Just as the inmate was winding up to send Tim's nose all the way through to the back of his neck, Tim chuckled. 
He was thinking of an old memory when he was hiking with one of his brothers, and his brother let him slip on purpose simply so that he could laugh at Tim's fall. Shit. If his brother could see him now, this pickle Tim had found himself in would really give his brother the fucking giggles. And the inmate paused his wind-up. Was this guy laughing about getting his ass kicked? Tim stopped laughing and got himself under control. No, no, no. Go ahead. Hit me. He told the guy who was about to clobber him. I didn't mean to be rude. Total deadpan. Dry. No smile. The delivery. The timing. It was perfect. And as the inmate cracked a smile and walked away, it may have been so perfect that it saved Tim's life. Years later, on stage for his wildly popular stand-up show, Men Are Pigs, which in turn became a Showtime special that would directly lead to the creation of his first television sitcom, Home Improvement, Tim would get men and women alike to laugh at an impersonation of a grunting American male who made pilgrimages to the craftsman section of Sears like it was Mecca. But in the joint, the men didn't want to be laughed at. So Tim made them laugh. Funny voices, funny observations, anything to take their minds off the fact that they were inside of a prison, fate unknown. Day by day, things got a little easier on the inside. Tim adapted to the cold metal benches, to the one toilet, to the bad food that somehow seemed to taste a little better by the end of the week. Most of all, being funny gave Tim a sense of relief that he wouldn't be held down and beaten. Plus, he had other things to worry about, like how embarrassed and disappointed his family was going to be and what had happened to Gerald Meade after the Kalamazoo County Airport bust. But the thing to worry about the most was the mandatory life sentence that the state of Michigan had passed earlier in 1978. Life in prison, no parole, no mercy. Tim made bail while his lawyer continued to work his case. It offered a reprieve. The air smelled a little sweeter and the sun shone a little brighter on the outside. For Tim, the entire ordeal of getting arrested and thrown in prison was a wake-up call. But what the fuck was he even doing? Slinging coke in Kalamazoo? He'd been wrong all these years. He'd been too stubborn and too emotionally stunted to see the truth. You weren't supposed to hold on to anger for years. You had to let that shit go. You also had to listen to other people. Really listen. So that's what he did. He listened when a friend told him that he should try his hand at real stand-up comedy. That could be a way out. It had gotten him through the last few months, and hell, if he could make seasoned inmates laugh in a cramped cell with one John, surely he could tickle the funny bones at a local comedy club. Whether it was kismet or divine providence or just dumb luck, a new comedy club happened to open in the Detroit metro area at the same time that Tim was out on bail. Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle was going to be the debut of Tim Allen, comedian. He removed the dick from his name because he didn't want them laughing at his name before he even started. But it turned out that getting anybody to laugh at Tim Allen's first legit set of stand-up was harder than entertaining fellow inmates. Tim Allen bombed hard. Each joke he told fell flatter than the last. Was it the setups, the punchlines? He struggled, dug himself into a deeper hole. But he had an ace in his back pocket. His best bit, the impersonation of the Pillsbury Doughboy getting baked alive at 350 degrees. Tim screamed doughy murder in a high-pitched squeal. He'd saved it to the end. He knew he couldn't miss with that one, and it killed. And when he walked off the stage, it didn't matter that he'd spent most of the set floundering. He left them all laughing. The comedy castle asked him to come back. 
they're going to have to wait just a little bit longer, though. Because Tim Allen's next stop was an encore with his original captive audience. It was time to do his time for the Kalamazoo cocaine bust. News of his impending sentencing was both good and bad. The good news was that it was looking more and more like Tim was going to be able to avoid a life sentence after all. The bad news was that the federal government was involved, and the only way he could avoid life in prison was to turn stool pigeon. The feds told Tim Allen to flip and give up every name he knew. The big guys, the small guys, the guys he knew on a first name basis, and the guys who he'd only heard about from others. If he wanted to ever see outside the prison's walls again, it was time to start talking. And unlike the man he would make fun of years later in his stand-up routine, Tim Allen didn't lie. He told the truth. He went, think. Permanent goddamn think. The information he gave up helped lead to 21 indictments. Four other drug dealers were subsequently convicted and sentenced. The feds were happy. The state was happy. Some drug-dealing scumbags were off the streets of Michigan and behind bars for a long time. Cops and prosecutors could all go home and put their feet up and feel good about themselves. And then there were the other guys, guys like Timothy Allen, who had dipped their toes into a life of vice and crime. The feel-good takeaway there was that they'd been shown the light and were working on a path to being better people and more productive members of society. But on the other hand, Tim wasn't that happy. Sure, he was pleased that, in exchange for giving up names and information, he avoided Michigan's infamous lifer law and was instead sentenced to three to seven years. He knew doing time would feel like eternity, but at least it wasn't actual eternity. That said, Tim wasn't stupid. He knew what happened next. Four other drug dealers going to prison along with him. Going to prison not because they fucked up and got caught, but because Tim had said a name that led to their arrest. He knew how men operated and what they were capable of. Takes one to know one. He didn't have a punchline funny enough to fend off the vengeance of a scorned drug runner. The judge may or may not have had a sense of humor, but he agreed that Tim would not be safe in the Michigan prison system. Tim had done them a favor, so in return, he was sent to a federal correctional institution in Sandstone, Minnesota to serve a sentence, 10 hours away from Kalamazoo. Tim hoped the distance would be far enough to make him forgettable to anyone who potentially wanted to settle a score. He worked on a plan for how he was going to succeed as a stand-up comedian once he'd done his time on the inside. He set goals, he made promises to himself. Because once he stepped outside the prison walls in three to seven years, he would no longer be Timothy Allen Dick, the low-level drug grunt. He would become completely unforgettable for different reasons. May 12, 1986, Oak Park, Michigan. It would still be a few hours before the sun came up. The red traffic light glowed like an orb in the sky. Ronald Harmelin sat at the wheel of his Ford, idling there, the glow of the red orb burning itself into his eyes. And the night was still. Harmelin didn't see anyone else around. All he could hear was the purr of the Ford's engine and the mechanical buzz of the traffic light. But that's what he thought he was hearing. 
fuck it. At this time of night, with no one around, a stoplight was a suggestion. He wasn't going to hurt anyone. He just rolled through the light and got on with his evening. Harmelin took his foot off the brake and hit the gas. That was his first mistake. But it wasn't the worst mistake he'd make that night. The cop patted him down and found a cigarette case in his pocket. The cop opened it. Weed. And that was all the cop needed to conduct a full search of the vehicle. Harmelin was also carrying $2,900 in cash, some pills, a beeper, a gun, and two bags of cocaine, totaling 672.5 grams. If only he'd been busted across state lines in Ohio, according to sentencing guidelines at the time, he'd be facing one to 10 years in prison. Shit, if the feds had busted him, they likely would have only put him away for five or six years, but Michigan, the coke in his car was over 650 grams, and thus, he had secured himself a one-way ticket to jail forever. And there was no hope, no way out. Ronald Harmeling became one of 123 people sentenced to life in prison under Michigan's tough law by the end of the 1980s. More than half of them first-time offenders. Harmelin thought it was cruel and unusual punishment. So cruel and so unusual that it violated the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. Harmelin agreed that he should be punished for his crime but in his mind, this punishment far exceeded any crime he had committed. And in 1990, Harmelin took that argument all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Harmelin's lawyer argued that Harmelin had no criminal record, that he wasn't violent, and that he could be easily rehabilitated. Prosecutors in turn noted that Harmelin had been busted near a motel in a Detroit suburb with enough cocaine to command up to 100 grand on the street along with other pills, weed, an address book, a beeper, and a gun. The picture they painted contradicted Harmelin's insistence that he was an unlucky first-timer. The Supreme Court was split right down the middle, but their 5-4 vote upheld Michigan's law. Ronald Harmeling would remain a lifer in the Michigan prison system. And as a lifer in a Michigan prison, it was a bitter pill to swallow when fellow inmates prepared to go before the parole board. You were a person, for God's sake. You fucked up. That's what being a person was all about. You could change. That's also what being a person was all about. Fucking up and then changing so that you wouldn't fuck up again. But you feel like less of a person than the guys who got paroled. The ones who were out there tasting freedom, which is a fucking flavor you're never gonna know for the rest of your life. And that's when the jealousy creeps in, the envy, the anger. And then your eyes catch a television set one of the shitty color models with the bunny ears and bad reception scattered in common rooms around the pen. And you see the sitcom playing. The guy with the tool belt and the power drill is Tim Allen. Of course, but you know him by his given name, Timothy Allen Dick. You know him because he's a legend of Michigan prisons. You know that legendary mugshot of his, looking like a cocaine cowboy. The one where he's got a slick Magnum P.I. mustache two years before Magnum P.I. was even a thing. And you know all about how Tim Allen only did 28 months in prison after singing like a canary for the feds. All of the inmates locked up by Michigan's lifer law knew all about that particular story. Because Tim Allen was unlike any other Michigan inmate. He was the one who found a way out. And then he found a way up. By December of 1994, Tim Allen earned a rare entertainment trifecta when he simultaneously starred in the top-rated TV show in the country and the highest-grossing movie at the box office, while at the same time, his book, Don't Stand Too Close to a Naked Man, 
was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Even though he is now one of the most commercially successful personalities of the last few decades, Tim Allen hasn't shied away from talking about his past. He has said that his time in prison was what helped him avoid the abyss he was about to fall into in 1978, that it taught him to live his life day by day, that it helped him to set real goals and, in turn, achieve real success. But he rarely, if at all, talks about the names he gave up in order to earn a reduced sentence for slinging cocaine. And why would he? When you find a way out, a way out that no one else is gonna find but you, you put your head down and keep moving ahead when you get outside those walls. You have one life to protect, your own. You have one direction, forward. You have one destination, out. And though he considers himself a political anarchist, who espouses conservative views and even attended Donald Trump's inauguration. He also, rarely, if at all, has commented on the politics of the Michigan Lifer Law that nearly put him away for good. Not even in 1998, when the state revised the law to finally offer a shot at parole for inmates like Ronald Harmelin serving life sentences for drugs. Because at that time, Tim Allen was once again moving forward after an unexpected glimpse over the edge of the abyss. He was on parole, this time on account of his second arrest in Michigan the year prior, 1997, for driving under the influence with a blood alcohol content of nearly twice the legal limit. And the infraction added to his everyman relatability. Who hasn't been there before? Luckily, no one was hurt, that's what they said, but he wasn't exactly in a position to take a moral high ground. And then again, taking the moral high ground was never his thing. His thing was to keep him laughing. If you're able to do that, then you ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. 